This week on the Totally Biased Media Podcast, we talk Mass Effect Remastered, discuss our luck with the NFT market, TBM posts its first retraction, and more. Finish up those calibrations and prepare for another exciting episode of TBM. Jackson walk up, and if I were off my rocker, I would take a weekly selfie with my cat. What? I'm Jason Simmons, and this is my favorite podcast on the internet. I'm Jordan walk up, and I think it's going to be a long, long time till touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Folks, this week, we're taking a trip, and not into outer space like you're probably imagining. We're taking a trip back to the year 2007. A year that a lot of gamers consider the best year for video games yet. It, it, it was so many big releases. We got Bioshock, Assassin's Creed, Mario Galaxy, Portal, Halo 3, God of War 2, and one of the most important RPGs so far with Mass Effect. And we played it again. So, if you're unfamiliar, Mass Effect is a trilogy of sci-fi RPGs, and they are some of the most important in the genre, and some of the most informative for RPGs that came after, and it took some pretty bold moves in terms of how stories progress through a series, and how your decisions impact the game you are playing yourself, and it's wild... It was overdue for this re-release. I I guess I want to start by asking the two of you guys, what's your experience with Mass Effect prior to playing these games in this collection? None. That's what I thought. I, I played all of the first two, and uh, like maybe a third of Mass Effect three, uh, and I never I never finished Mass Effect three, but I've played the first two probably twice more since then. I have a lot of experience with those two games. I played the first game. I, I beat the story. I didn't do a ton of other stuff with it. I It didn't jive with me too much, like, mechanically. So I didn't jump in on the second one yet. All right, at the time. But now that they are out as a trilogy, I am dead set on going all the way through all three of them. Well, I, I do distinctly remember getting the game when it first came out. Or not... not when it first came out, but you you brought it over to our house, and I played it on the original Xbox a little bit, uh, and I got past the first level and just decided I hated it, and then I put it down for probably like four or five years after that. By the time I picked it up again, it was when the uh, when the trilogy collection came out. That's when I played the first two, the first time. And then I, I bought them on PC sometime after that and played through the first two again. And just I just never went to the third one. I don't know why. So this is not the first time that they have re-released all three as a collection? Well, the first time was just a collection. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't like... Yeah, and it didn't have all the DLC or anything like that. It was just all three games in one box. Right. I still have that. It's somewhere in yeah. the house. And 
what we are talking about today specifically are remasters of Mass Effect through Mass Effect 3. So these are games that have gotten a lot of touching up since the last time I played them, and boy howdy, the first game, it's had some changes. But before we get into how Mass Effect is, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background on what Mass Effect is, and I'm going to try and do it in as few words as possible, but this series is dense, and there is a lot of material here, so this is kind of how I sum it up. We're over a thousand years in the future. Humans are now living in space alongside several alien species, and they are part of this alliance, which essentially is one governing body that unifies several different species of aliens. In the games, you play as Commander Shepard, a member of the Alliance military, and it starts with you just on a routine mission, but you end up encountering some like strange and hostile aliens that are protecting some ancient tech that you don't fully understand. And essentially, Shepard interfaces with this tech, gets this wild vision that shows worlds just being absolutely destroyed and just horrible things happening. And on this same mission, Shepard finds out that a Turian, one of the other alien races, uh, Spectre, which is basically an agent of the Council, which is the leader of the Alliance, uh, so Turian Spectre is conspiring with this new alien threat, and after tracking down some evidence on why and how, uh, Shepard meets with the Council to discuss what happens, and they promote him to the rank of Spectre. He's the first human to reach that rank. And he is basically told, go get a team and go figure out what Saren is doing and put a stop to him. And then the game kind of opens up with the galaxy to explore and lots of cool space warriors to find. <laughs> does that does that hit kind of the highlights for y'all? Am I missing anything important? <laughs> yeah, how long in the future? It's in the 3000s, isn't it? No, it's 2183. Really? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I was the when they find the humans find the Prothean alien technology on Mars and it throws our technology forward by just an incalculable mm. degree. Okay. I was thinking it was I knew that that had happened, but I was still thinking like this particular story was like way way out. But okay, so anyways, apparently 115 or so years in the future. <laughs> We are now living in space, and it's fine. But, Jackson, since you're the one that's had the least experience with this, and you don't really have the bias of playing the original release, why don't you kick us off with some of your thoughts on the game and how it how it treated you? <laughs> I've never really played RPGs before. Like, I've started them, got like a fifth or a fourth of the way through, and then just kind of dropped out. This is the first RPG I've ever actually finished, and it is honestly probably one of the best games i've ever played uh it's really fun um i really like you know the whole building the world off of conversations instead of actions thing because i mean recently a lot of games are just complete action with minimal dialogue um it's got of the few cover shooters i've played it has some of the better combat um but i'm not really in the cover shooters so that's not really saying too much but uh, yeah, just overall, I I really like the world they have set up, um, all the interesting things you can find just by, you know, just walking around and talking to random people. And that's kind of just like the whole thing of RPGs though, right? Well, some of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
more of the bigger ones, kind of like Fallout or Skyrim or so. Now, one important distinction between this game and a lot of other RPGs is as much depth there is to the world and the characters in Mass Effect, it's still a lot more linear than people generally think of RPGs just as a whole. This is still a very structured story, but you just have a ton of options in terms of how you react to it and how you go into situations. I think that's what made it so easy for me to get into compared to the previous RPGs I played is that you know, you don't feel like there's just just the entire open world just weighing down on you to explore from the moment you start the game. I'll admit, I've always preferred games where you play as a set character as compared to games where you create yourself or just create your own character in the world. I know that's not a popular opinion. I know a lot of people would prefer a game where you are yourself or whatever you want to be. But I, I really like how you have some control over how Commander Shepard acts and what he says, or what they say, sorry. <laughs> but it's it still feels like this is an established character, and I think that helps me sort of connect with him a little bit more. You know, the actions that you actually made in the game start to affect the world around you and will change how people see you. So even if you have... Uh, you know, a background where you've been an acclaimed warrior or something. Um, if you play through the game as a super nice guy or just a huge jerk, people will treat you accordingly. And I think it's one of the most ambitious games I've played in terms of how it incorporates those types of things into the rest of the game. Because there are major, major decisions that you get to make in this game, which inform not only the rest of your experience with Mass Effect, but the rest of the trilogy decisions you make in mass effect one will have massive impacts in two and three and i i I can't even think of another game series that does that and even if there are some i i don't know of any that do it nearly on this scale but the way it's done in mass effect with like a single character where you can kind of build yourself out over multiple games and actually get to see what happens to your character afterwards, I think is really interesting. It's something I'd really like to see more in other games. Absolutely. But I think it's just very kind of costly to do. I, I mean, I the amount of time they must have spent writing for this game. I mean, they save time by not having, you know, quite so open of a world, but just the additional thought of like, okay, well, if you made this decision here, how is it going to affect Mass Effect 3? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, for example, you can have a party member die in Mass Effect 1 and therefore won't be in the future games, but as someone writing a game like that, you have to have so many contingencies. You have to think like, in this scene, it's character X, Y, and Z. But if character X died in the previous game because of the because of the player character's decisions, how are we going to then have to change this conversation to accommodate that? And I think they pull it off extremely well from what I've played of two. I'm only eight or ten hours in at most, so I can't comment on that for the whole series. But like these guys, these guys really knew what they were doing with this, and they put a lot into it um it's definitely some of the most like impactful decisions i've seen that i as a player get to make in a game it's really the kind of game that you could only see coming from bioware in their prime (laughs) like i i can't think of another group that would be able to make a game quite like mass effect these days well i think it's also a product of its time i think that 
this idea of having a branching narrative that then informs future games just isn't as viable of a, of a moneymaker as it was 15 years ago. I think that today, so many people don't don't even necessarily care about those facets of a game, and I think developers are a little bit too afraid to make a sequel that relies too heavily on its predecessor because they're then losing the entire market of people that didn't play the, the previous game. And I think you're seeing a lot more games that are they're putting a lot more emphasis on being able to stand on their own feet, which is great. Like, I mean, it, it means that you can play more games that otherwise wouldn't be accessible, but it also means that you're losing that depth of the long-term experience with a series, per se. I don't think that's really a trend with gamers so much with uh, oh. develop or not developers, but oh, like absolutely. producers. Absolutely. Publishing companies just wouldn't. They're not going to commit to something that isn't financially viable, even if it means sacrificing developmental integrity. These days, though, the best way to make money is something quick that people can jump in and out of. Uh, whereas I, I think 2007 was really the beginning of when you saw uh, like big narratives kind of brand or coming out of video games. I mean, that was around the same time like Uncharted came out. You know, people wanted video games that were more like movies, and that's really a big thing that Mass Effect was going for at the time. I mean, it's got a pretty great cast, and they worked hard to make sure that they actually kept the same cast throughout all the games, and, you know, they they tried to set up these big set pieces, and I think some of them are still really nice. Uh, some of them honestly feel a little bit weaker in the remaster than they did originally, but overall, I mean, it's pretty impressive what they've managed to do and the way that they've managed to kind of recreate it with modern graphics and modern tech behind it. So speaking of differences between the original and the remaster, since I never played the original, what are some of the like the big differences that you guys noticed in the uh, remaster? Well, the original's ugly. Content-wise, there's not a ton of difference between them. It really is just improvements in visuals, load times, uh, just general stability. The biggest difference, combat. biggest difference, is the combat, which is leaps and bounds better than it was in the first game. And I still don't think it's great, but I think that this game is delivering such an ambitious story and such a fleshed-out world that the combat just being fine as a vehicle to get between that isn't isn't a bad thing. I think it does what it needs to do. But then I've played several hours of Mass Effect 2, which has that same level of depth of world and characters, but also just has really good combat. So, like, you can see that this game, or that this series, got a lot of love between the two games, and they they really built into that combat side of it. I The big thing with that is that, uh, like, Call of Duty and first-person shooters really took off between one and two and you can see like the effect that it had on combat especially if you play three three's combat in comparison to one it's an entirely different game but one's combat is mostly based around you know conserving your ammo making sure that you're using your weapons effectively to prevent them from overheating uh, and also just using the pistol yeah that is one of my gripes with the combat it's not even so much that it's not fun or that it has a lot of problems 
as much as it's it's super unbalanced. I mean, I only played on the default difficulty, not really knowing what to expect with a higher one, but this game was incredibly easy once I got a feel for it, and just a regular old pistol with some basic upgrades on it was leaps and bounds better than any other gun I had, which partially is like your class informs what weapon types you're good with, and your what skills you choose kind of contribute to that to an extent. So, I mean, maybe it was just me personally sticking too much to the pistol, but it didn't feel like there was... It wasn't a very balanced combat experience. Generally speaking, I stuck with yeah. the same same weapon and same handful of abilities in literally every fight, and it worked all the way up to the final boss. I honestly think the combat, in a lot of ways, feels less balanced in the remaster. Just because when I played originally, I made better use of the abilities and also things like the sniper rifle I used quite a bit because I played Infiltrator, uh, which meant shotgun and <laughs> assault rifle were basically completely off limits in the original release. Um, they made changes to make it to where any of the classes can use any of the weapons. So even if you're not an Infiltrator, which I believe is the only class that has sniper rifle proficiency, you're still able to use one without it being like a huge hassle. The issue is, the other changes they made to the game are what led to the pistol being so much better than it used to be. You can really use it from just about any range, and it kind of takes away a lot of the strategy that you needed to put into combat. Um, I even used the grenades a lot less. The grenades were my favorite part of the original Mass Effect, but it just doesn't feel like there's really as good of reason to use them after like the first few missions. It kind of just really? feels like you can use the pistol... To get through everything, and there's really not even that much reason to use abilities. The only time I ever really used grenades is when I'd just be like, oh hey, I have those, maybe I'll try using them. And then they're not good, and I stop using them for a while. Yeah, that was kind of in the same boat. I, the grenades are only good if you learn how to detonate them while they're in midair. You have to be able to kind of get a feel for it first. Which I did learn, and that helped a little, but they still weren't great. And I think that's another thing that 2 fixes really well. Um weapons by getting well, rid of them weapons are more balanced <laughs> grenades are now an ability abilities are they're not as like game changing as they are in one but you can use them way more frequently oh i think that they're significantly better in the second game i like i said i didn't use abilities in mass effect one well i just mean any given uh, use I'd... of an ability isn't as like like if i playing as a I cannot remember the class, the pistol shotgun one in Mass Effect 1. I had a couple of abilities that, like, if I knew, I knew if I used this, I could easily wipe out a whole group. Whereas in 2, all of my abilities are like, if I use this, it will do a decent amount of damage to one enemy. <laughs> um, but I, again, that's all difference in classes, which I think adds a lot to the game, too. The, the classes are very, very distinct, and it's not necessarily something that's worth replaying the game just to try out a different one. But it's it's something cool if you do decide to come back down the road. Like, you can have a, a pretty different experience in that regard. Yeah, I mean, speaking of having different experiences on separate playthroughs, the Paragon Renegade system, mixed with all of the different changes you can make, or choices you can make that actually kind of affect the game world, makes the series, like, really replayable, which is pretty impressive considering how long it is. Uh... I, I started a second playthrough as Renegade, because uh, I played Paragon on my original playthrough, 
And Renegade's fun, but <laughs> just the way that you interact with people is completely different. It's honestly kind of funny. Um, not specifically, there's not too many good ones in Mass Effect 1, but there's a pretty famous scene in Mass Effect 2 where <laughs> if you're playing Renegade, you run into a reporter that's like saying bad things about you and you punch her in the face. <laughs> it's just like, if you're playing Paragon, Shepard would never do anything like that. <laughs> it's just kind of funny, the huge differences in personality between the two playthroughs. Yeah, and if you're if you're not entirely sure what he's saying really just think a good and evil system just a little more there's a little more to it than that it's not always inherently paragon is good and renegade is evil as much as i guess it's more like authority and anarchy is more a better way to put it than good and evil it's just like you have certain dialogue that's locked you have Certain characters you can't really approach at all unless it's one. You have certain missions that change drastically based on where you're at on it. So it it really adds a lot. Um, and that's even even with me just noticing. I, I did primarily Paragon on both, but with this one I was a little more fast and loose with my decisions. And I think it, really, it was really different from the story of the first time through. I'm pretty sure Mass Effect 1 was one of the first RPGs uh, to have full voice acting for every line of dialogue. And there is a lot of dialogue in this game, which is crazy considering you can beat the game in like eight hours. <laughs> you can. Yeah. I mean, how long did you guys have in your playthroughs? I, I went back and double-checked today. I had like 12 hours and some odd minutes. I had about 17 and a half hours. Yeah, I was closer to Jackson. I had 22, mm-hmm. I think. You did all the side missions, right? Yeah, I did all the side missions I came across. Uh, and I also... I got all the achievements except for a couple that are just like, use this ability 50 times or 25 yeah. times. I think the I didn't get a bunch of them for using abilities 25 times, and I didn't get the one for using Metagel 50 times. Uh, and Metagel is just how you heal in the game, which I think says something about how yeah. easy it is. <laughs> that I played for 22 hours and did not heal 50 times. Okay, so one last thing. I, one last gripe I just want to get in. It's really not that big of a deal, and it's not a deal breaker for most people, I'm sure. So, in Mass Effect 1, you have a vehicle called the Mako, the Mako, something to that effect. Um, essentially, it's just your way of traversing large distances or rough terrains, things like that. It both controls badly and is overused by a pretty good margin. <laughs> Um, I think there should be approximately one-third as much driving as there is in this game. That being said, it's still not totally unpalatable. It's just not fun, and it's a distraction from when the game is actually good. Um, don't be, don't go too sour on that if you're not loving it in the first game, though, because you really don't see that problem in 2, from what I've played, at least. As somebody that played the game and did all the side quests, I cannot recommend enough not doing that. I spent like 10 hours in the Mako. It's a yeah. nightmare. It's It gets think... worse the more you play with it. That's the thing. <laughs> it's, it's somehow, in the beginning, you're like, oh, it's fine. Like, I understand it. And then the more you use it, the more you're just like, I need to get up this, this sheer cliff. Please help me up. And you'll be able to climb like 80% of the cliff, and then you'll get somewhere, and it's like, oh, sorry, can't make it any further. Yeah. 
So you have to go all the way back down to the bottom of the cliff and try again somewhere else. Because they have stuff hidden. And for some reason they decided all of the maps that you have the Mako on are going to be, like, vertical. <laughs> it's a night. I hate yeah. it. I hate it so much. It sucks. It, yeah, it's pretty bad. They made a big deal about how much they were fixing it. And I gotta say, it's noticeable what they did. It's just that yeah. bad. They could have done a million more things and it probably would have been just as awful. The only way you can fix it is by redesigning all those maps. And that, I don't think they wanted yeah. to do that. Because that would take away from, you know, the original design of the game. But anyways, it, it really doesn't ruin the game by any stretch, at least for me as someone that didn't play 100% of it. But just, it's something that's not great. And just, if you want to play this game, you'll have to deal with. So, Okay. It was bad enough that after a certain point, I was just like, yeah, I'm not doing any more side missions just because I don't want to be in the Maker anymore. <laughs> well, and you did most of the regular side missions anyways, it, it seems like. Yeah. So. I think I think by the time I had uh, two more story missions to do, I was just like, yeah, I'm done with side missions. I probably still had like four or five side missions to do, maybe, excluding like the ones where you just find collectibles. Mm. I just right. did not feel like doing them at that point. <laughs> One of them is super easy, and the other ones are all nightmares. I just sort of, the way I played it was, I started off where I was doing all the side quests, and then several hours in, I was just kind of like, I just kind of want to get the story moving. So after that point, I just started doing the ones that sounded cool or interesting or involved characters that I liked. So after that, I just kind of I just kind of played it by ear. I still did a lot, but I didn't do anywhere near everything. Okay, so we've already gotten into Mass Effect quite a bit, so let's let's sum it up. Jackson, give me your pros and your cons and your final score. Pros, um, really good. Uh, I guess I guess just really good RPG systems, which would make sense since this is one of the like best RPGs around. I'm uh, so I'm told. Um, is, that's a weird thing for you to call out as someone who already said you don't play RPGs. I said for so I'm told. Um, but anyways, um, it's got really good world building. There's a lot that you can just find out, just again, just by walking around and just finding random consoles to access. Um, it's got decent shooter mechanics. There's a good bit of stuff that isn't balanced, like the pistol being overly strong and the shotgun being utterly useless. Um, and some abilities, I just honestly didn't find that useful as I was playing Vanguard, which is the, like, abilities and pistols and shotguns roll. Still, just pistols were so overpowered, I didn't even use anything else, so that honestly kind of sucked. The Mako is, yeah, it's bad. There's, I can't think of any redeeming qualities about it. Um, <laughs> uh, even, like, the kind of mini boss fights that you have with it against the <laughs> Threshers, those suck. Yeah. They're um, really cool I, if you like Dune. Yeah, that's that's not a thing that we're gonna talk about ever again. I'm sure. <laughs> Anyways, keep going. That was a that um, was a a joke because there's a movie coming out, and yeah. we're definitely gonna talk about it. But anyways, um, I think overall I would give Mass Effect One a nine out of ten. All right, um, Mass Effect One. I mean, I have similar gripes to Jackson. Uh, you know, there are a lot of abilities in the game that just kind of feel useless. Specifically, I think the tech abilities are significantly underpowered con uh, compared to biotic abilities. Because the biotic abilities will be stuff like, uh, you know, 
pull a guy into the air so he's not behind cover or pull all the enemies in the surrounding area to a single point or just throw somebody off a freaking cliff. And then the tech abilities will be like, make their shields explode for a second. <laughs> um, I mean, the Mako is garbage, just like we said. But uh, the th- bigger thing with Mass Effect is that, like we said, at the time, it was you know revolutionary in what it was trying to do. Trying to tell, you know, a sci-fi epic story in video games. I mean, you'll get individual video games that have done that, you know, throughout time. But there's never been, you know, a trilogy like Mass Effect. Uh, And Mass Effect 1 really sets the groundwork for that, you know, that incredible story and all that. Uh, It's got some great character interactions. It's a whole lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to give it an 8. And if Jackson gave it a nine, he's going to love Mass Effect 2. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, like, it's tough because a lot of the things that I dislike about this game, I think, are just a product of age. Um, I mean, the combat being kind of sluggish and inconsistent, the bad balancing, uh, way too much time in the Mako. I think that those are things that they recognized weren't great and they fixed almost completely by two. Uh, one thing we didn't mention... That was another thing that kind of aggravated me. Navigation in the first game's rough. Maps are kind of hard to follow. There's not a ton of there's not a ton of detail about where you need to be going. Um, so that made it a little bit. That, I think that was part of the reason that I was just kind of shooing off a lot of side quests because there's just a lot of getting around that was convoluted. But I mean, all that being said, I think this is a really moving story. It has really unique and inspired characters. It is a complex but thorough explanation for all the sci-fi elements. I think it has some of the most impactful decisions that I've ever had to make playing video games. So I think for all of the things that I have think haven't aged super well, this is still just an incredibly ambitious game that really... Like, I really connected to, even though I didn't necessarily see myself in the characters or the journey or the development. So I, I just think it's it's such a cool idea that I, I really, really wish this game would have been a total rebuild, like, from the ground up instead of just a remaster. Because I think what they have here is something excellent. It's just bogged down a bit by its own initial existence i guess you could say but i mean across the board i still really really enjoyed it i'm, I'm gonna give it an eight as well we, we will talk about or we will probably talk about mass effect 2 and 3 at a later date it's just we wanted to hit home on the first game because one it's the only one we've all played at this point and two it's the one that has experienced the most substantial changes two and three were more just renovations to the appearance of the game or changing some little things here and there. Where one, it's some pretty, pretty big improvements. So that means our final score is 8.333 continuing. Hooray. We really love those continuing oh. numbers. <laughs> well, it's just kind of the issue of having three people reviewing something. Yeah. You know how it is. So. I would I would comfortably round that up to an 8.5 as our collective score. <laughs> if that Yeah, I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, we have a lot more stuff to get into. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. 
ladies and gents, we have some big news on the NFT market. So last week, Jason told us all that he had wasted over $700,000 on the Charlie Bit My Finger video. And turns out, that may not have been a very good investment. Because NFT sales <laughs> have dropped nearly 90% from their peak a few months ago. So we are looking at substantial, substantial decrease in overall sales. And I don't really know what that means, but I know a lot of people are losing a lot of money on this right now. And it's just, it's shocking because the very concept of NFT just sounds like such a good way to make, to make it rich. You know, I'm actually taking advantage right now. Uh, you know, after my big purchase of Charlie Bit My Finger, I just, you know, since the prices have dropped, I went ahead and picked up, you know, all the best YouTube videos. I got, I got Evolution of Dance. <laughs> I got, you know, the, the, the one where they do Daft Punk with their fingers. Yeah. You know, I've got it all. And baby, one day when this market comes <laughs> back, I'm going to make millions on that and my beanie babies. <laughs> It's going to be a good day. You know, I got... I have literally hundreds of Beanie Babies. Hundreds of pop figurines. And the market just keeps growing. I mean, honestly, I don't think that there are any collectibles out there that are going to make me quite as much money as those three. NFTs. You know? Pretty wild. Forget stocks. How much money I'm going to make. Forget cryptocurrency. Forget whatever bonds are. All... NFT from here on out. <laughs> yeah, I actually, with the money that I made, you know, I had I had already been planning on buying all those YouTube videos, but with the money I saved since the NFT market crash, I was actually able to just buy Fred. <laughs> just as a person, you now own Fred. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Uh, he didn't come with his dad, John Cena, but, you know, sometimes... You just got to take what you can get. So I actually picked up two pretty important NFTs. Uh, I now have all of Annoying Orange's videos, and I went ahead and double-dipped on my own videos, which are actually just a live camera feed of a hidden camera in Jackson's room. Um, I figured, you know, millions of people are out there watching that, so I better just go ahead and get official ownership. But yeah, off of those two Understandable. things... <laughs> off those two things i'm gonna strike it big one of these days you know now that i'm the only person that's legally allowed to say this chocolate rain chocolate <laughs> rain i don't know the words for chocolate rain <sighs> what happens if i say it i can sue you chocolate rain chocolate rain Ooh. you're violating my nft after a pretty awful first launch Biomutants got that big, big first patch coming out. They heard everybody complaining about, you know, all the gibberish dialogue being, like, way too long, the narrator being annoying, the combat being bad, and they got that first patch coming out that's gonna fix all of it. <laughs> it seems wild that this game is in development for four years, or four years since it was announced, and it hits the markets... And within a couple of weeks, they're like, okay, so we're going to take a mulligan on that one. 
uh, yeah, I I only played about four hours, I think, of Biomutant when I got it, and it's just, nothing about it was jiving with me. The intro is way too long, so I, I get why they're addressing that, but the combat just feels bad, and that's basically the only thing the game really sells itself on. Because it has these interesting systems, like exploring this big post-apocalyptic world, and there's this clan war, but all of that's just some really generic conversations. It does the opposite of what Mass Effect does. You go up to an NPC in this game, and it's straight up just like, do you want to help this person, or do you want to assault them? And like... Those are your only options. <laughs> and those type of things form, inform the entire clan war that you're in the middle of. And My big understanding of Biomutant is that it has really bad tone issues. Yeah, I could definitely see that from what I played. Because it's a pretty grim concept. But the world itself is not reflective of that at all. And not in a, like, a big like a juxtaposition of a dark story and a really pretty and upbeat world in like a doesn't understand its own method of operation it's it's just disappointing like i i wanted this game to be something i wanted this game to at least be passable but right now it is not so hey maybe this patch will come in and fix everything but every game that's this disappointed is the me big lately, patch <laughs> yeah every game that's disappointed me lately has had this problem where they're like, oh, we got this patch coming, and it's going to fix everything. And I'm looking at you, Marvel's Avengers. Hey, I'm just waiting for that big patch where they finally fix Cyberpunk. Oof. <laughs> it's coming, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, sure. Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> the greatest director of our entire generation, with, uh, like, nine movies he's decided he's packing it up he's calling it maybe maybe <laughs> once upon a time in hollywood might be his last movie maybe <laughs> and he went out on a uh, he went out on a big on you know a big hit like i think that this was a movie that uh I, this was one of those movies that a lot of people that i know that don't watch a lot of movies still saw this movie <laughs> And there's just a handful out there that get that kind of draw. I guess that probably is just the effect of Tarantino as a director. I mean, yeah, he's kind of still riding off of the highs of Pulp Fiction, <laughs> which was his first movie from, like, almost 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you have that kind of reputation, which I guess you can only really maintain that kind of reputation if you make as few movies as he yeah. did. But every single movie I've seen of his has been really good including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That was the only one I was lucky enough to go see in theaters because I guess he did make one stinker, at least in my opinion, The Hateful Eight. I, it wasn't bad. It just I it wasn't quite as good as his other movies, in my opinion, at least. I, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be a good, you know, kind of like, hmm, blanking on the right word there. <laughs> but it, it's song. definitely a, a high note to end on. Yeah. yeah. What I find really interesting about this concept is uh, this is all happening after this. This is all happening after the fact. Basically, he was like, you know, I think after my next movie, I'm going to retire. No, no, wait. After 
the last movie I already made, I'm going to retire. Huh. I guess that means I'm already retired. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a weird way for this to happen. And I mean, like, I'm sure this was something he was contemplating long before the movie was finished or anything. It's just, it's it's funny it's coming up now. (laughs) Maybe I'm thinking of some other director, but has Tarantino said in the past, like, some blank movie would be his last movie? Like, multiple times or something? I don't think so. I'm fairly certain he made a big deal several years ago and said he was going to make ten films. Um, And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is technically his tenth film, but he had previously said that Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 was, you know, just one movie in his eyes. (laughs) So, I realized who it is that I'm thinking of, and it's... uh... How after every Transformers movie, Michael Bay would say, this is his last Transformers movie. Ah. And then he made five of them. I wish that he would say it one more time. <laughs> I wish he would just mean it once. <laughs> uh, Tarantino and, and Michael Bay, they're, they're easy to mix up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I got them mixed up at all. Uh. They have a lot in common. I bet that they both love to use the N-word. <laughs> So, that really bad Super Mario Brothers movie from 1993, um, some fans have found 20 minutes of cut footage and made an extended cut of it <laughs> for some reason. Now... It's about time. <laughs> release the... I don't know who the director Nintendo is. Nintendo Super Fan <laughs> yeah. Cut. Uh, the Nintendo Power Cut. It's... <sighs> I look at that movie, and I think, wow, they really scraped the bottom of the barrel on this one. But to know that there's another 20 minutes out there somewhere that the director thought, well, that's not necessary, is is absurd to me. I'm, I'm assuming it's either A, incredibly offensive, or B, just totally throws any semblance of what Mario is as a character out the window. Realistically, it's probably just unimportant, but I I want it to be something just incredibly raunchy. <laughs> like I I ho- I'm hoping it is some just really off-color jokes or just a very adult scene in a movie that was not made exclusively for adults or or something. I don't plan to watch this cut when it comes out, but I will definitely find those 20 minutes specifically and watch those. <laughs> Okay, so I actually looked it up, and I had jokes that I wanted to make about what it was going to be, but then I saw, you know, one thing is, Mario was played by Bob Hoskins, which I think everyone knew. Luigi's played by John Leguizamo, (laughs) which is pretty wild. I didn't know that, Uh, but it says that the new scenes include the two of them arguing in prison about familial pride. It also includes a rap performance by two Koopa kids. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird that that got cut when this was a 90s movie, because, like, other 90s movies really leaned into their bad rapping. I mean, Vanilla Ice wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for that kind of thing. Folks, it's with a heavy heart that I have to say... We at the Totally Biased Media Podcast were wrong in one of our headlines last week. Previously, 
we had said that Far Cry 6 is not political. Not even a little bit. And that it's overwhelming similarities to Cuba were just coincidental. Well, it turns out we were wrong. But only half wrong. Because this game is political, but we promise, not based on Cuba. <laughs> yeah, I was actually planning on buying this game after last week's story, but unfortunately, now that I know it's political, <sighs> wah, wah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Far Cry as a series is pretty wild, because even at its most tame you're overthrowing military organizations. And at its absolute worst, you're overthrowing entire governmenting bodies for third world countries. So, like, it's never been in good taste, <laughs> but it does kind of feel like what's happening with Six could be their worst yet. Which is wild, considering Five was about killing a cult leader in the American Midwest and, like, the clear parallels by this American company to an American religious background were insane. Uh, it's, uh, Ubisoft is not American there, friend. Oh, uh, yep. My bad. My bad. Folks, it's with a heavy heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Maybe that's not as, yeah. I would, uh, if it were... Far Cry 5 was 100% a political game. Absolutely. They they all have been. It's just 5 was the most pointed, specifically as something that we, as Americans, are familiar with. They've all been. I we're just ignorant. So. Yeah, I think it's especially something uh, relatable to us living in... You know. We're in the Bible Belt, which is technically separate yeah. from the group there. <laughs> talking about but it's pretty dang similar religious zealots are not hard to find <laughs> yeah yeah i think probably one of my biggest weaknesses as a person is the fact that i could see something about a game and think wow that's in pretty poor taste that's a bad decision i sure wish they wouldn't do that i'm absolutely going to at least try far cry 6 <laughs> It's not even a question in my mind. And I'm also shallow enough that if I just get to do cool things like blow some people up with a rocket launcher, I'm probably still going to enjoy it. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily anything particularly in bad taste that we've seen so far. Uh, I mean, clearly a side has been picked. Even if they if you, even if they want to pretend this is not about what's happening in Cuba. I haven't seen enough of the game to be able to say it's in bad taste or it's in good taste. But it's definitely political. <laughs> Everything is political, folks. Get used to it. <laughs> I mean, I guess we should have known it's political. No further comment. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to leave that in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, now on to the important stuff. Jackson, what else have you been into? I've been playing this hit little indie gym, Overwatch. Um, I'm familiar. You can't be. It's a hidden gym. <laughs> yeah. um, I haven't played Overwatch, I think, maybe like three years. I haven't played it since they added Brigida. 
it's still essentially the same game. I mean, Overwatch 2 isn't out yet, so, like, makes sense. It's a lot easier to pick back up than I thought it would be. <laughs> I played a few Capture the Flag matches earlier today as uh, switching between Brigida and Lucio. It, it's still, like, I was still having good time. Um, team was winning. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's fun. Um, yeah, Jason, what you been into? Well, uh... I started Subnautica, <laughs> and I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV. All right, time to talk about more RPGs. Final Fantasy XIV. I convinced Jordan to buy yep. it. I bought it for Jackson. Now I'm going to get the whole family in on it, you see. Uh, having a good time. I've gotten past all the fetch quests, so it's just to the point where now I just run and talk to people. And that's better. The beginning is very, very <laughs> fetch quest heavy, and I'm glad I stuck with it long enough to kind of get through a good chunk of that, because the dungeons are very fun. The more co-op-centric stuff like feels great, and I think it really highlights what the game can be, even though I'm still pretty low level. But yeah, that, that beginning is a slog. <laughs> but once you get past the beginning, I think it's really good. It's got a very nice visual style to it. You know, I like how all the areas look different and all that. This is kind of a weird way to talk about a game now that I think about it, if I'm not reviewing it. <laughs> but, yeah. like, it's just a pretty game. Yeah. I like all of the different areas in it. I'm having a lot of fun uh, doing dungeons when I actually get to those. The stuff in between the dungeons isn't quite as fun, but better with friends. Yeah, even if you're not actually working on the same quest, just, like, someone to talk to about what you're doing, <laughs> is it does go a long way. So, yeah, that I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things I've spent a good bit of time with this week. I also got back into Overwatch a little bit too, and it's, I mean, it's like riding a bike. I've, I fell back into the nuances of it really quickly, which was good. This is probably my most played game of all time. But if you, I, I'm sure it is if you count the time I have on console and PC together. It's, it's a game that I've really fell in love with, like, instantly when it first came out back in 2016, but I haven't really played it much in about two-ish years now. Um, so wanted to give it one more shot as we're getting closer to Overwatch 2, and I'm, I'm really digging it. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. I want to talk about my good friend, Bo Burnham. Ah, uh, yeah, that good friend of yours. Yeah. Fan of the show, Bo Burnham. <laughs> uh, so Bo Burnham's newest special, Inside, just came out on Netflix, and it is harrowing. <laughs> it is physically hard to watch sometimes however it is also brilliant and incredibly funny i think it is some of his best music he's ever put together i think visually he does some really just like truly appalling things considering he is 100 percent doing this himself from scratch in one room it's wild the level of visual effects that go into what he's doing and the fact that you know everything is done in one shot because it has to be is just really, really cool. And I think that it's one of the most inventive specials I've ever seen. It sort of started this debate about what a comedy special is, and I don't care about that. I enjoyed this, whatever it was. But Bo Burnham's Inside. It's really, really good. It it gets dark. I mean, he says pretty explicitly the reason he started working on this special was so he wouldn't kill himself. Like, it, it's raw, but it is very, very good. Be prepared to be a little bummed out, 
especially around the middle of it, but like overall, one of his best specials. I think it probably is his best special. I'm not sure it's his funniest, but it is his best made and it has the best content. It's just it's so good across the board. I, I think he is brilliant, one of the best minds in the comedy business. I love everything that he does, but I think this is a whole new level for him and shows hopefully that the comedy special genre can have a lot more meat to it than just one person with the microphone in front of a crowd. Now, we've given you our reviews. We've talked headlines. We've told you what else we've been into. There's nothing left to do but close up shop. If you want to find us, and you should find us, you can find us on Twitter at TBMcast, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. You can send us an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Jackson's home address is. Not actually going to do that, but. Oh. <laughs> but. Reach out to us. We'd really appreciate to hear your thoughts on the content of the show, your own reviews for new release movies or music or games or shows or whatever. Give us your thoughts on the fact that we're changing the layout of the episodes week to week. What works, what doesn't, whatever it is we want to hear from you. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen and we'd really, really appreciate it if you just took that extra step and reached out. Now, from Totally Biased Media Podcast... I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. Thank you, everybody. And you just felt the bias. Did it again. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. It's all right.